You're listening to the China Law Podcast, a weekly podcast exploring China's business and financial sectors from a legal perspective. I'm Vincent Chow, a reporter at China Law and Practice. Today's episode is the second episode of our annual review special, looking back at the year just gone by in various key areas of China's legal landscape. If you haven't already, be sure to check out last week's episode, which was all about U.S. tech sanctions and export controls targeting Chinese entities in 2020. The Chinese government has been outspoken in recent years about its desire to improve the business environment for both domestic and foreign companies. Part of its strategy to do so has been the promotion of arbitration by the Chinese judiciary, spearheaded by the Supreme People's Court. At the same time, the Hong Kong government, led by its Secretary for Justice, the arbitrator Teresa Chang, has been eager to promote Hong Kong as a regional dispute resolution hub. My guest today is Edward Liu, a legal director advising on disputes and maritime law matters at Hill Dickinson here in Hong Kong. Dual qualified in both England and Wales and in China, Edward is also an experienced arbitrator and mediator, and a member of the Hong Kong government's advisory committee on promotion of arbitration and its steering committee on mediation. As you'll hear later, Edward is a wealth of knowledge on these issues, including the ways in which China is opening its doors to foreign arbitral institutions, as well as the promotion of frictionless arbitration proceedings across the mainland and Hong Kong. Edward, welcome back to the China Law Podcast. Hi, Vincent. Thank you very much indeed. We can't talk about 2020 without talking about the pandemic. In fact, last time you were on, which was the first episode of the, this podcast, by the way, so thank you very much for helping me launch this. So on that episode, we talked about force majeure and the issues that COVID nineteen has created for contractual parties in China. Can you start us off by summarizing what the main arbitration related issues are that has arisen from COVID nineteen? Well, yeah, indeed, actually,、uh, force majeure was was and is still one of the topical issues in in China. I would say. Because at the very beginning of the at the outbreak of COVID nineteen,、uh, most of the Chinese companies have to be locked down, and therefore they were so panic to to understand what is the consequence if they cannot fulfill their obligations and the contracts. But first of all, based on my personal experience, honestly, I I have advised a few cases on this issue, but none of them、uh, proceeded further. Uh, to the real litigation or arbitration, and probably that's also uh, um, the similar experience uh, among other、uh, litigators and, and 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 lawyers in the arbitration、uh, practice. The reason is, I think, after the first few uh, months, uh, most of people have already used to it, and also based on my、uh, experience in handling those cases, both parties at the time quite cooperative. They all understand that the difficulties are not created by either of the parties, but by、uh, the COVID nineteen pandemic, and therefore the man, the commercial mindset was prevail, and they all want to to、uh, find a resolution to resolve the problems and to encounter、uh, to 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 overcome the difficulties、uh, through a commercial co-、uh, channel. And also, I think the other reason why force majeure was ultimately not. An issue to be fighted in the law are,、uh, arena is because China have already、uh, coped with the first wave of pandemic,、uh, first wave of COVID nineteen,、um, and most of the com- most of the companies and the factories resumed operate normal operation. So、uh, they have already done their best and to from the commercial perspective to avoid. Uh, the further escalation of delay or, or disruptions、uh, in their operation. Yeah, that's the reason why. 
When you talk about cases you've handled, are they between Chinese parties or do they have a foreign party involved? Yeah, because I'm based in Hong Kong and dealing with the international arbitration. So most of uh, all the cases that I mentioned are actually foreign related. Um, I, I, I act for the Chinese com- Chinese side, but the other uh, the counterparties are basically, uh, for example, like Hong Kong or, or uh, the, South, South, the South Asian uh, countries. So what's interesting is that when COVID first hit, the discussion surrounding force majeure was very much about how Chinese parties will claim force majeure in their uh, contracts with foreign parties. Now, of course, it is the rest of the world that is in lockdown, while China is basically uh, back to its full operations again. Have you had any experience of foreign parties claiming force majeure in their contracts uh, with Chinese parties? Personally, I don't have uh, uh, this kind of experience. By the way, I, I see uh, more and more contracts, even with English law uh, to apply. The force majeure clause has now been uh, commonly incorporated into the relevant clause. Because you may recall at the, at the first uh, interview that when we talk about the force majeure is- issue, we, talk, we compared with the different concepts of force majeure under English law and the Chinese law or the common law and civil law. And uh, even now for those uh, contracts under English law, uh, the parties are now more prepared to accept the uh, force majeure clause. Um, so I think that's also probably the reason why they have uh, more certainty or I would say more predictable uh, mechanism to resolve any issues if it has fallen within the force majeure clause. That's interesting because um, English law doesn't have a concept of force majeure, right? Exactly. And it's probably also the case that we're only a few months into the, into the pandemic, um, even if it has felt much longer for many people. So perhaps it's the case that pandemic-related disputes um, that do eventually proceed to the arbitration stage, you know, they won't get to that stage for another few months or maybe even years. Exactly. And I still believe that the commercial parties are still trying to resolve the problems. If it's really, really and purely caused by a pandemic to resolve the disputes themselves instead of fighting uh, uh, through litigation or arbitration. Let's put the pandemic aside then and, and look at the arbitration reforms and developments in China over the past year. How would you summarize what's happened? Yeah, when we talk about this issue, as we uh, previously said, that uh, we, we really see the time flies, right? That I, I still recall in December 2019, I was interviewed by you regarding the developments in China, especially for the uh, arbitration practice. And now we are discussing again about the development on, on uh, arbitration practice in China. And my term, my view actually that uh, there are positive developments in, in arbitration, especially in 2020. Okay, let's let's drill drill down on some of those positive developments then. Starting with the, a landmark decision in Guangzhou uh, regarding an arbitration administered by the ICC, the International Chamber of Commerce. Yeah, the Brentwood uh, uh, and the Guangdong Far Anlong uh, case. I would say the important indication uh, of this case is that the seat standard instead of the place is more accepted by the Chinese judiciary. Uh, let me start first with. Uh, the problems, the previous or actually still uh, 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 an existing problem with uh, China's arbitration, international arbitration practice is that what legal regime governs arbitrations administered by foreign arbitral institutions? Or on the other hand, whether a foreign 
arbitral uh, institution is entitled to run uh, arbitration in China and what is the nature of that kind of arbitration. And in this Guangzhou case, as we now all see, is that the courts uh, made the decision saying that it should be a foreign-related arbitration. So that's a very that's a very significant step made by the Chinese judiciary to basically, from my perspective, accept a foreign arbitration institution to run the arbitration in mainland China. That's a very significant move. So the Guangzhou court ruled that the award uh, in that case is a foreign-related award as opposed to a purely foreign award, which is what people would have expected uh, given that Chinese courts have traditionally looked at where an arbitral institution is based to to determine the, the nationality of an award. Uh, so because the ICC is a foreign organization, uh, so they, people would have expected the court to have ruled it as a foreign award. But actually this time, the Guangzhou court looked at where the award was rendered uh, to determine the nationality of the award. And because the award was rendered in Guangzhou itself, so then the court ruled that it was a Chinese foreign-related award. Yes. Uh, also, it's a not a domestic arbitration award. The court indicated that it should be a foreign-related arbitration award. So that's probably, I think, from my and also the other practitioners' uh, point of view, it is an indication or implication that the Chinese judiciary is attempt to align its position with the internationally recognized seat standard. It is an ICC arbitration, but the, the seat of the arbitration was in China. It was not outside. So... The logic behind the decision of the Guangzhou court, I think, is that because you, you, the parties chose the seat in China, then it should be governed by Chinese law, and then it should be treated as the Chinese of, as a vote made in China instead of foreign award, because foreign award is simply simply means that the award made in the foreign countries or foreign jurisdictions, like in Hong Kong, in London, in Paris, or in Singapore. But your award is made in a city of China, so that should be a Chinese award. Yeah, that's the difference. Are there any advantages of having your award uh, being deemed a foreign related one rather than a purely foreign one? Well, if it is a foreign award, of course, that when you apply to recognize and enforce that award in China, then the Chinese court will review it through and there's a mechanism provided by the New York Convention. But if it is a, a foreign related arbitration award, then that means you are actually a Chinese award, then they will only review the award as, as uh, under, under the civil procedure law to consider whether the award can be enforced and recognized. The advantage, honestly, from my point of view, uh, to be a foreign award, it is more advantageous. Because um, as we all know that under the New York law, there are only very limited grounds for the court to refuse uh, the recognition and enforcement. But if you are a foreign-related award, that means you are Chinese award, you are, you are still a, a award made in China, then based on my understanding, there, will be, there would be more grounds to refuse the enforcement by the Chinese court. Uh, for example, that the Chinese court may be entitled to review the legal issues decided by the arbitral, uh, arbitral, arbitral tribunal. But uh, we know under the new convention, the enforcing judiciary is not entitled to review the legal issues or the factual issues. So um, honestly, to be categorized as a foreign award, it is more adv uh, advantages. So the advantages of this decision aren't necessarily being felt by Brentwood itself, the plaintiff, uh, which is the party... 
that was seeking enforcement of the award at the Guangzhou court. But rather, the, the impacts of the decision will be more felt by the foreign arbitra- arbitral institutions themselves, who will now have more certainty about how the awards they render in China will be viewed by Chinese courts moving forward. Exactly. Let's move on to another major development, which is the relationship between the legal jurisdictions of mainland China and Hong Kong. And we saw a major development near the end of the year, which was a significant update to an arrangement going back all the way to, to uh, the year 2000. And it's about the mutual enforcement of arbitral awards between the two, two jurisdictions. And I want to highlight two of the key changes under this new uh, supplemental arrangement. That's what they're calling it. And the first uh, key change that I want to highlight is um, preservation measures. So can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, sure, sure, definitely, definitely. And also that I'm, uh, because as you know, that I'm a member of uh, the Department of Justice of Hong Kong uh, for promotion on uh, arbitration committee. And therefore, uh, and fortunately enough that I was also, uh, to some extent, engaged in the discussion about the new, new arrangement signed between the Department of Justice and the Supreme People's Court uh, last year in, uh, in November. To make it clear that the preservation method measures pre and post enforcement at the pre and post enforcement stage is allowed. This was missing in the original arrangement, but actually in practice, some of the Chinese courts have already granted such kind of application for interim measures in aid of the enforcement of Hong Kong arbitration awards. But now under this supplemental arrangement, it has now been clearly and expressly confirmed. And also, I have to say that this is really important is because, um, uh, Vincent, you know that uh, in ni- uh, 2019, uh, Hong Kong and the mainland China signed another arrangement on the interim measure in aid of um, the arbitral award between these two uh, jurisdictions. And, and I, I, I was the first uh, lawyer actually in Hong Kong to apply for the interim measure from the Shanghai court in out of one of the Hong Kong cases that I handled. And uh, that arrangement is for the interim measures before and during the arbitration proceedings in Hong Kong or in mainland. And now, because of this supplemental arrangement to the enforcement of the arbitral vote, we have a full picture to help the relevant party to an arbitration to have the preservation methods available in aid of his uh, claim uh, to apply for the relevant securities to uh, to secure his claim. So that's very, very important as well, because except for Hong Kong, no other jurisdictions, based on my understanding, is entitled to apply for such kind of interim measures uh, from a Chinese courts. And the other big change uh, that I want to highlight is allowing the applications of enforcement of arbitral awards across Hong Kong and the mainland at the same time. Yes, the simultaneously applications of enforcement of arbitral awards. Probably some of the people outside the Hong Kong background don't understand it, why there was uh, a, a such kind of amendment. Because under the new convention, once, for example, you obtain an award in, from, from London arbitration, then you can apply to enforce the award in Hong Kong, in mainland China, in Singapore, as long as, of course, the sums that you enforced through all these jurisdictions are not existing, ex- exceeding um, the awarded sum. But under the original arrangement between Hong Kong and mainland, you can either choose Hong Kong or mainland to enforce your award 
obtained from Hong Kong or mainland. You cannot do it simultaneously. Well, probably before a case uh, issued last year, and that is CL and uh, SCG case, before that case, no one was really aware of this con- uh, significant consequence. I would say the adverse consequence because of this uh, this um, uh, uh, this problem, this uh, uh, loophole. But under that case, the CL and SCG SCG case, the plan the plaintiff applied to the Shenzhen court for enforcement of a Hong Kong arbitral award in 2011, but it was rejected in 2015. And then the plaintiff appealed to the Guangdong Higher People's Court for retrial, and that retrial was also rejected in 2016. After two years, in 2018, the plaintiff commenced the legal action to enforce a vote in Hong Kong. And then at that time in the Hong Kong proceedings, the defendant opposed on the ground that the enforcement was time barred. Because in Hong Kong, uh, once you get the vote, you can only, uh, uh, you should uh, uh, apply to enforce it within six years, i.e. the six years is a time limit, uh, the time bar. And the plaintiff argued, I, I, I recall in the, in the case, is that the cruel of the course of the action uh, should be suspended during the time of its application to the Chinese courts, to the mainland courts, for enforcement of that award. But the Hong Kong judge uh, disagreed, uh, refused to accept it, accept it and also uh, set aside the enforcement order uh, because the time would still uh, running uh, during the party's enforcement action in mainland. So that we will see is a, is a really consequence, uh, a very significant adverse consequence against the party who successfully obtains a vote but cannot simultaneously enforce the vote in both jurisdictions. And now under the supplemental arrangement, this hole has been filled up. Let's look ahead now at, for our final question, looking ahead at uh, the coming year. What do you think are the main issues or priorities that the Chinese arbitration community would like to see addressed? And how could arbitration in China be further internationalized and modernized? Well, again, I believe um, we have repeatedly discussed about this issue, and I also believe this is one of the topical issues among the practitioners in China's arbitration community is to reform the arbitration law. Uh, uh, And also, I, I, I saw the news that actually it is being discussed. But you know, uh, to, re- to revise a law, it always takes time. And also, I, I'd like to uh, uh, say that actually, whether, whether I'm not sure whether you 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 are aware of uh, the initiative promoted by our our Secretary for Justice of the Department of Justice that in, in Cantonese is Gangzi Gangfa Gangzhongcai. It's uh, the Hong Kong Hong Kong enterprises can choose Hong Kong law and uh, have the arbitration in Hong Kong. Uh, when I when they say uh, when they say the Hong Kong enterprises means the Chinese company, the company registered in China but actually wholly owned by a Hong Kong person, and then whether it can be allowed to choose. Uh, the Chinese uh, choose Hong Kong law and the Hong, uh, Hong Kong arbitration. Um, that that is an effort being taken by the DOJ uh, to communicate with the uh, Chinese judiciaries and and, and uh, other authorities. Uh, that's another probably topic that we can we can discuss uh, uh, in another uh, occasion. But what I would say is that we can see the the more and more open minded developments made by the Chinese judiciary to support the international arbitration and to show their sincerity that the, the a more modernized arbitration 
is uh, the, uh, the foundations to support their good business environment. So um, I, I still firmly believe that um, we will see another uh, some, something further uh, uh, development in China in China China's arbitration practice this year. So the Hong Kong DOJ uh, is advocating for allowing Hong Kong-owned companies on the mainland, more specifically the Greater Bay Area, to adopt Hong Kong laws and arbitration seated in Hong Kong. And this proposal is still at its earliest stages of development, so there hasn't been any concrete changes yet. But can you explain why these companies are currently not allowed to choose Hong Kong law for their arbitration? By way of example, that probably in Shenzhen there are two companies. One is uh, one is uh, actually uh, actually owned by a Hong Kong person, and the other one is actually a foreign, wholly foreign-owned company uh, uh, established by a U.S. company. But under the current arbitration law. These two Chinese companies, despite they are actually owned by the foreign parties, and if there's a and if the contract between them has no foreign related elements, then they cannot choose a foreign law and a foreign seat uh, of arbitrate uh, uh, to arbitrate their disputes arising from such kind of contract. They can only choose Chinese law and the Chinese arbitration. But if that initiative can be accepted, can be really agreed by the Chinese authorities, that means under these circumstances. The parties can choose Hong Kong arbitration and can choose Hong Kong law as a governing law of their contract, despite their contract has no foreign elements. So I believe, of course, on one side, it will it will encourage more parties to to choose Hong Kong arbitration, which will be all the lawyers in Hong Kong like me will be benefited from it. But on the other hand, I believe that more and more foreign companies will have no more hesitation to choose to set up or expand their business in China, in mainland China. Right, and that's because they they won't be restricted to choosing Chinese arbitral institutions and、uh, PRC governing law. They now have other options.、Um, more specifically, they have、uh, Hong Kong、uh, governing law as an option. Exactly. Okay, so that's something to look out for this year. Is there anything else that you you hope to or you expect to see this year? I I would say is let's wait and see if there's more cases from the different Chinese courts to support as what we discussed first. If an award is delivered in China,、uh, administered whether that award can be accepted, recognized, and enforced in mainland China. And also, let's let's wait and see that if if a party choose a foreign、uh, a foreign arbitration institution, and but but again in China for the arbitration, whether that arbitration clause will deemed as valid by most of the、uh, Chinese courts. And I think as long as more and more cases can support、um, these kind of developments, we will、uh, we will see a speedy reform. Of the relevant arbitration law, yeah. So that's the two two points that I've really I'm really keen to see this year. Edward, thanks for joining me today, and thank you for listening to the China Law Podcast, a weekly discussion of China's business and financial sectors from a legal perspective. Make sure to check out our website, ChinaLawInPractice.com, to keep up to date with the latest Chinese legal and business news through our in-depth analyses, including contributions from our network of leading lawyers and in-house counsel, as well as full access to a searchable database of English full translations of PRC legislation going back 33 years. Be sure to check out our full 2020 annual review articles covering 10 areas of China's legal landscape, which will go live on our website in the coming days. 
We'll be back next week with an interview with the general counsel of a leading Chinese tech venture capital fund. Stay tuned and thanks again for listening.